You're listening to the Tri-State Community Church Podcast, a ministry of the Associate Reformed Presbyterian Church located in the greater Pittsburgh metropolitan area. For more information, including service times, please visit us at facebook.com forward slash Tri-State Reformed Church. Luke chapter 2, verse 1. In those days, a decree went from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria, and all went to be registered each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth, and she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. And in the same region, there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. When the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. And when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning this child. And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. But Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all that they had heard, seen as it had been told them. At the end of eight days, when he was circumcised, he was called Jesus, the name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, for this sacred story, for recording it for our benefit, recording it for the, not only the salvation of our souls, but for the edification of our souls. And Father, we pray that you would be pleased to teach us once again from this familiar passage, Lord. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, this year we're doing things just a little bit differently, and I've been really excited about the approach this year, which has been music. We started in Psalm 138 with a song. We're going to conclude, I think, on Christmas morning with a, with, by returning to Psalm 138 and giving thanks once again for everything that has gone in between Thanksgiving and Christmas, namely the coming of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. And we've been following the music. Um, you know, our second, in our second message, uh, which really was the first message of Advent, we took a look at what the church is historically called the Magnificat, named after the first Latin word in the Latin translation of, of Mary's address. And then last week, we looked at what has been historically called the Benedictus, again, named for the uh, first Latin word in Zechariah's prophecy. 
And as we come to Luke chapter 2, you can almost hear the angels because the, uh, the music is getting louder, isn't it? Uh, it gets much louder in chapter 2, verse 14. And this particular uh, verse and passage has historically been referred to as, in short, the Gloria. Uh, sometimes you'll hear it referred to as the Gloria in Excelsis Day. And a lot of times when we hear the phrase Gloria in Excelsis Day, we think of a popular hymn, don't we? Angels we have heard on high, whose refrain goes, uh, Gloria in Excelsis Day. Uh, however, the Gloria that um, I am talking about is not that hymn. Uh, that hymn's refrain is probably uh, borrowed uh, from the Gloria. There's probably little doubt that they've borrowed it from there. In fact, the hymn writer of Angels We Have Heard on High, we do not know who he or she was. Uh, it's of French origin. We don't know the composer. It's anonymous. Um, it's a beautiful and gorgeous hymn. Um, it's one that we all love when you hear it, no matter how many times you hear it. Uh, you can try to imagine how many times we've heard that hymn in our lifetime. And it doesn't seem to get old, does it? It just brings and fills your heart with joy. Um, but the Gloria that um, I have in mind, uh, sometimes referred to as maybe some of you have heard of the major doxology. Has anybody ever heard the major doxology? Uh, you've definitely heard of the minor doxology, although you've maybe never heard it referred to as the minor doxology. Does anybody remember Gloria Patri? You know, we got some glory be to the Father and to the Son and to the Holy Ghost. Yeah, as it was in the beginning, and now shall ever shall be, world without end. Amen. That's the minor doxology. Uh, whereas the Gloria is, uh, has been uh, referred to as the major doxology. And I have found myself really getting lost in all of this, uh, especially as this, as this season has rolled around and we've decided to go at this by looking at the songs. I, at the same time, I've discovered the symphony channel on XM radio, and they've been playing all of this old uh, ecclesiastical music, which I've been finding fascinating. And I wish my truck, the, the, the um, radio in my truck is a little too old to give out the reading of what's being played. So once in a while, once in a blue moon, I hear they'll introduce this, the piece that they're about to play. And I'll, I'll get that, but then I don't always remember it. Um, so a lot of the music I've heard, I have no way of researching to see, okay, um, what, what exactly was the name of that and who is performing that? Um, but I have found myself really getting interested, and especially in preparing for this morning's message. You know, the, the glory in Excelsis Deo actually is one, and there, there may have been more discoveries since then. But uh, according to Philip Schaff, a, a, a historian, a noteworthy a historian of, of, of noteworthy, and his, his stuff's public domain, you can read it on the internet. According to him, only two such pieces survive. And they were referred to as the psalmos. If you hear psalmos, that's just the Greek word for psalm. It's the psalmos idiotikos. What is idiotikos? It is a word for private. And uh, there are actually two. There, there may have been more discovered since then. A lot of discoveries were made in the 20th century, 21st century. But there were, uh, up until the time of Philip Schaff, there were only two known uh, pieces of this genre and the interesting thing about this genre is they were private psalms. What's that mean? 
Well, uh, they'd probably date, the Gloria could very well date back to the second century, second or third century. And it's an example of the faithful uh, looking for ways to express their praise, if you will, to Almighty God. And of course, one of the ways that they're doing that is they're looking at Luke chapter 2, verse 14. And the Gloria is based on Luke chapter 2, verse 14. And it's called Gloria in Excelsis Day. And according to many, it gets that name because of the Latin in the Gloria. Or we should say the Latin in um, Luke chapter 2, verse 14. However, you know, having read that several times, I decided to look at the Latin text of Luke chapter 2, verse 14, just to see for myself if that really is so, and I'm so glad I did, because the Latin of that text does not use excelsis. It's not there. And the interesting thing about that is excelsis is in the Latin, but not until you get to Luke chapter 19 and verse 38. And it's used, it's, it's, a, it's a word choice that's used to describe the people that are, as Jesus is descending down the Mount of Olives and people begin to chant and they begin to say glory on high. They say gloria and excelsis. But in the Latin of Luke chapter 2, verse 14, they say in altissimus which led my curious mind to wonder, what's the difference between the two words, altissimus, and why aren't they saying altissimus? And I, not having ever studied Latin, I ended up on a forum where someone had asked this question, and it appears that some of the answers that were given, uh, they were very learned answers. It appears that these were, these were scholars, probably professors of Latin, some of them had to probably were probably professors of ecclesiastical Latin, that is church Latin, because of the answers that they were given. And it just reminded me of sitting in Greek class back in seminary, uh, given some of these answers. But in essence, altissimus and excelsis, they really mean pretty much the same thing with this exception. They both mean on high. But altissimus is a superlative. What does that mean? Some of us will remember from seventh grade English that you shouldn't use superlatives when you're talking about pizza. You know, pizza is not awesome. Awesome is a superlative. You can say pizza is good. You might say this pizza is better than some other pizza. You might even say this is maybe the best pizza you ever had, but it's not awesome. Um, you'll, rarely do I use the word awesome unless I'm thinking of the Lord. Uh, we might look at a landscape, maybe look at a Grand Canyon scene or look at a mighty um, uh, mountain peak or something or some scene in, the, in the, uh, some landscape and say, boy, that's just awe-inspiring and that's fine as long as we're drawing the line from that scene to God's handiwork. I, I think the word awesome needs to be reserved just for God, actually. It's a superlative. It means it's, it's taking the language as high as it can go. Um, altissimus simply means highest. And it's the word that, that the Latin translators bring the words of the angels into, that they're saying glory in the highest, whereas excelsis simply means glory on high. And I don't know, I got a theory, then this is just leave this at this. I know so little about this and just really started to research it. But I have a theory, and I wonder if the old church fathers decided to use excelsis because they didn't want to take the names uh, that the angels used on their lips and decided to use excelsis instead of uh, altissimus. Or maybe they didn't feel it rhymed well with their song. 
I really don't know. But I have a translation of the ancient Greek text, the Gloria. I'd like to read it, and I'd like to compare it to a more modern one. Um, this is one translation of one uh, ancient Greek text of the Gloria, and it goes like this, glory be to God on high. Notice it's on high. So it doesn't say glory to be on highest, so they're, rec- they're recognizing the choice, the word choice there. Glory be to God on high, and on earth peace, goodwill towards men. We praise thee, we bless thee, we worship thee, we glorify thee, we give thanks to thee for thy glory, thy great glory, O Lord God, heavenly King, God the Father Almighty. O Lord, the only begotten Son, Jesus Christ. O Lord God, Lamb of God, Son of the Father, that takest away the sins of the world, have mercy upon us. Thou that takest away the sins of the world, have mercy upon us. That thou takest away the sins of the world, receive our prayer. Thou that sittest at the right hand of God the Father, have mercy upon us. For thou only art holy. Thou only art the Lord. Thou only, O Christ, with the Holy Ghost, art most high in the glory of God the Father. Amen. And just listening to that, without the benefit of having it before you, it's easier if you have it before you. I don't like long quotes when I'm preaching because it's easy for your minds to go fishing when you hear them. But you can hear the high note of praise in that, can't you? At the very least, you can hear that. And it is said, tradition says that Hilary of Portier, who was a church father, that upon visiting the East, he discovered the Gloria. He brought the Gloria back to the West, and it was translated into Latin. And that's where it begins with this Gloria in Excelsis Deo. It was so wildly popular that modern historians and scholars have now identified more than 200 melodies that have been put to this song just from the medieval period alone. So it's being used. This is being, you know, I, I want to introduce it because this is part of the history of our faith. Um, and it, it's been used in the East, it's been used in the West, and it's been used in, in Protestantism uh, as well. From the Book of Common Prayer, 1662, listen to this translation of the Gloria. Glory be to God on high. And in earth, peace, goodwill towards men. We praise thee, we bless thee, we worship thee, we glorify thee, we give thanks to thee for thy great glory. O Lord God, heavenly King, God the Father Almighty, O Lord, the only begotten Son, Jesu Christ, O Lord God, Lamb of God, Son of the Father, that takest away the sins of the world, have mercy upon us. Thou that takest away the sins of the world, have mercy upon us. Thou that takest away the sins of the world, receive our prayer. Thou that sittest at the right hand of God the Father, have mercy upon us. For thou only art holy, thou only art the Lord, thou only, O Christ, with thy Holy Ghost art most high in the glory of God the Father. Amen. It's beautiful. Um, It's quite beautiful and very devotional. And it's taken from, we can see how it comes from Luke chapter 2, verse 14. Now, with that lengthy introduction in mind, let's take a look at these familiar words that lead up to verse 14. Uh, I think probably for the most part, as I look around the room, most of us are probably familiar with this story. Uh, In verse 1, we have another time marker in those days. Uh, Decree, and what would be those days? Uh, Mary is uh, very far along in her pregnancy, Uh, In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. 
And little would have Augustus realized, but his decree was something that God would use providentially to get Mary and Joseph exactly where he wants them. We read from the Micah prophecy earlier in our service, which said in Micah chapter 5, verse 2, that the Savior, the Messiah, would be born in Bethlehem. And we see in verse 4 of our text, Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David. It's really important that we always remember Joseph has royal blood flowing through his veins, and Jesus will be his adopted father, um, or Jesus will be his adopted son, I'm sorry. And of course, Jesus is to be the son of David. And in verse 5, we're told that along with him uh, is Mary, his betrothed, who is with child. Uh, She comes along, if you will. And uh, this would be an arduous trip. I read, I think, in uh, in some accounts, it's approximately a 70-mile trip, uh, uh, a a dangerous trip and a, a difficult trip. Um, And, you know, I was thinking of some of us, not to mention any names, who were recently pregnant. I was just wondering if we were to ask, um, not to draw any attention to anyone who was recently pregnant, if we asked her if she would like to get on the back of a mule and go 70 miles, it probably answer would be no. I think perhaps you would rather walk. I don't know. Um, But um, this is just some of the hardship that Mary Uh, endured as she traveled with um, Joseph in order to fulfill the word of the Lord, if you will. Um, And in verse 7, we're told that she gave birth to her firstborn son, wrapped him in swaddling cloths, and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. Now, if if you're looking at an ESV translation, you'll notice that there's a footnote there next to inn, And if you look down, it says, or guest room. And actually, I think a good argument could be made that those actually should be reversed, that I think it's probably more accurate to refer to this dwelling as a guest room. Uh, However, the traditions being what they are, um, and I have no, you'll be happy to know, I have no desire this morning to sit and nitpick uh, tradition. I don't care to do that. But over the last couple of centuries anyway, the holiday tradition, the Christmas tradition, has really largely so romanticized the story that we've actually pulled a lot of the the really essential points from it. The dwelling that they most likely uh, found um, wasn't an inn like we would think of an inn, uh, but it was more of a private home that had three rooms. At least this Greek word uh, describes a private room. Listen to this, this You know, a lot of us have grown up having our own bedrooms, or we had a bedroom maybe with a sibling, um, but in antiquity, it wasn't like this. Um, there There were typically three rooms in these homes. In the center of the dwelling, there was the family room, one room where the whole family dwelt. So no kitchen, uh, no bathroom, bathrooms outside. Just one room. This is the living room. This is where we eat. This is where we sleep. This is, this is where we live, the single room. And it had an exterior entrance. So you could enter that room from the outside. Then there was a solid wall between it and the guest room. And the guest room also had its um, external entrance. And that was the only way to get into the guest room. You couldn't go from the guest room to the family area 
uh, via inside. You would have to go outside and, and then come back in. And I, 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 I bring this point to you because when we read in, um, in the New Testament about offering hospitality, keep in mind that the typical home uh, was designed this way. It would make it a lot safer to invite a stranger into your home if they didn't have access. You know, our homes are nothing like these homes. Uh, so you have the family area. You have the guest room, if you will. It had one, one door. You go in, and that's it. You just have access to that room. You don't have access to the family room. However, there's a third room. It also has an exterior entrance, and it is the room where the animals are kept. And between the room with the animals and the family room, there was an opening so that the family didn't have to go outside and then re-enter in order to feed the animals. So your living room would have potentially full view of where the animals were kept. Um, and um, what is going on here is by the time Joseph and Mary reach uh, their destination, wherever that destination was in Bethlehem, they found the, the guest room already occupied. So the only other room that was available is the room where the animals were kept. And I think that, you know, that it's not too far removed from what we often hear, but I think it does sharpen what's going on here. Um, Mary and Joseph are with the animals. Um, and many of you who are in the um, medical field, I mean, imagine trying to set up a sterilized field uh, in that quadrant of the room. Uh, we can only imagine the bacteria and stuff that would be in there. And I mean, for that part, I mean, the living quarters would be, uh, would be no treat or picnic either. But uh, this is the, um, the lot that, that God has chosen in order to step into. Uh, it's one of poverty. It's one, um, it, it really is stunning. Uh, we, we would expect, I think, if we wrote the story for Jesus to be born in a, pile, a palace and set into a golden crib, but instead the manger there obviously is well, you will probably all well know, was the feeding trough for these animals. It's a makeshift crib uh, for Jesus uh, to be uh, put in. So this is the scenario. Mary gives birth. It would have been very dangerous. She gives birth in this um, guest room, if you will, and Jesus is wrapped in swaddling cloths and he's placed in a feeding trough. Um, if any of you have ever seen those, uh, they're typically chewed all up from the animals chewing on the side of them. Um, it's not the place that you'd lay your newborn. You'd want to lay your newborn, but if there's nothing else available, and that's the point here, um, there's nothing else available. When we get to verse 8, the scene changes. In the same region, there were shepherds out in the field. And again, because of the romanticizing of the story, we have in many ways, with the, just with the cartoons or just with the pictures, you know, just the, the, the drawings of the shepherds, I think, are, many, are in many ways uh, misleading. If we made the shepherds to look like a band of gypsies, I think it might be more true to the text. Uh, because the shepherds were outcasts during this time. They were, uh, this will tell you a lot, the testimony of a shepherd was inadmissible in a court of law. So I think that detail right there alone tells you a lot. 
The, sh- the testimony of a shepherd was inadmissible in a court of law. Why? Because they weren't known or thought of to be respectable, truthful, or um, reliable. Uh, they were thought of thieves. They were thought of robbers. As I've been, you know, just preparing for this message, thinking about how to illustrate this, I think the only thing from my own uh, experience that might describe this is, I, you know, there used to be in, in Hookstown years and years ago, I don't know if anybody here will remember this, but there used to be a band of gypsies that would come to town once, uh, about once a year, it would be in the summer months, and um, there was a local store not very far from where I grew up. We used to walk to it. We would collect pop bottles. And you get six or eight pop bottles. I mean, you were rich, man. Six or eight pop bottles. Some of you are smiling. You remember, you, you get the pop bottles, and you go to the store, and you, give the, you, give the, you, you would give them these pop bottles. They'd give you a dime for each, so you'd have 60 or 80 cents. And with that, you could get... An RC, you remember the RC Cola, the 16, you could get a 16-ounce RC Cola in a glass bottle that you could bring back, I think, for a nickel, right? The RC bottles weren't as much. You couldn't get, I don't, I don't think you got as much for an RC bottle, but you kept the bottle because you could take it back. But you could get an RC for 25 cents. And then you could get one of those hostess, uh, I'm not trying to make you hungry or anything, but one of those hostess uh, lunch cakes for 35. So you have six bottles, man, you're in, you're in. And I, I can remember that poor store owner being frantic when the gypsies would come to town because what they would do is they would flood her store. There would be 25 or 30 people just go into the store at one time. And there would be a handful that would be occupying her at the counter so she couldn't keep eye. And she'd be just going like this. She'd just be going like this. They steal, they steal, they steal. And I don't know if they were or not, but my guess is perhaps they they would just raid the store. Um, And that's the whether these shepherds were of that stripe or not, uh, this is how people thought of the shepherds. And I think as we begin to understand that, we begin to see the shock factor. Because in this scene, in this same region, there were shepherds. That's not shocking. They're keeping watch over their flock by night. That's not shocking. But what's shocking in verse 9 is an angel of the Lord appears to them. That is absolutely shocking if we start to understand Uh, the milieu of the culture of that time. This is absolutely shocking. An angel is appearing, an angel of the Lord is appearing to these shepherds, and we're told that the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they're filled with great fear. Of course they're filled with great fear. That seems to be the case always, doesn't it? that they're filled with great fear. Why? Because as sinners, when we're brought into the presence of the holiness of God, what do we think first and foremost? We think judge. Whether we admit it or not, deep down in our conscience, we recognize we deserve judgment. And that's brought quickly to the fore when we're brought into the presence of the holiness of God. And of course, they're filled with fear. And in verse 10, the angel said to them, fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy. Good news here. You and Galizo. You hear you and Galizo. That's the word we get evangel from. Evangelism comes from that word. The evangelical church. Evangelical comes from that word. The angels say, I bring you good news of great joy 
that will be for all the people. Verse 11, for unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. This is one of the, uh, one of the greatest uh, passages in the New Testament in describing Jesus. Look at, it, look at all of the descriptions that are given right there. For unto you is born this day in the city of David one a Savior, a Savior. He is a Savior who is Christ the Lord. He is Christ. Here we have not just a title, but actually a name. I think we can go as far as to say that, that we have a name here, not just a title with the word Christ. The word Christ simply means anointed. It's the Greek form of of Messiah, if you will. We have the Messiah. Handel's famous Messiah, as we're thinking about music, actually quotes most of the verses in that, uh, in that from this section right here. Uh, Handel's Messiah. We could say Handel's Christ, if you will. Uh, the words are the same. But notice the Lord. He is the Lord. And the word that's, that's used here in the Greek is kurios, and you've heard me say this before. It's the same word that the Greek translators use when they're translating Yahweh in the Old Testament. So he is the Christ, the Messiah, the anointed one. He is Yahweh. Yes, this, this is unbelievable. Let's not forget who this is being announced to. This band of gypsies out in the field. It's not to Augustus. It's not to them. There's a lot more I'd like to say about this, and I decided to, to, to bring this on Christmas Eve, and that is an advertisement for Christmas Eve. I want to visit this again, and there's a really big lesson in this, actually, in regards to Augustus that I, I think would make for a good reflection on Christmas Eve. But at any rate, back to verse 11. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And in verse 12, this will be a sign for you. Notice how the angel being sent by God, notice how God is reaching down into their weakness. They're giving them a sign. We're going to give you a sign. You know, it, it makes us think of the sacraments, doesn't it? What are the sacraments? They're signs. And how God so reaches down into our, our weakness he reaches down into the midst of our doubts and reaches down into the midst of our weaknesses. He gives these gypsies a sign. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths. Okay, so far, that, that might not be something that's much of a sign. Everybody's coming in to be registered. Perhaps you could find a number of babies wrapped in swaddling cloth in Bethlehem, but probably would find very few lying in a manger. And, of course, this may help them find Jesus and know that they have found Jesus, but there's a theological point being made here that goes far beyond simply being able to find him. Let's just ask yourself this question. What in the world is the Messiah doing in a feeding trough? I mean, it's so paradoxical. Isn't it? It's just so ironic, isn't it? I mean, it's not how we would write the story, is it? And it's already preparing us for a Savior who would die on a cross. I mean, here at the very beginning, we're already being prepared for this thing being upside down in terms of the estimation of, our, of the world. The gospel everywhere does this, doesn't it? I mean, we think he should be born to a prince. He should be born to, 
He should be in a palace. He should have all these nurses' aides around him. He should be pampered. He should be, oh, down the list, he should be wearing uh, the silk, and he should be, you know, he should have a crown, and everybody should be bowing to him, all, you know. But here he is wrapped in this obscure place. He's not even granted. I mean, they didn't even throw the family out of the guest room in order to make accommodations for him. No, he's with the... It's with the animals. Now, in verse 13, suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly hosts praising God. This word multitude is a strong word. Um, This means that there is this huge, and hosts means army, there is this huge army, if you will, of angels regimented for the purpose of, of forming a choir. Imagine you're just a couple of gypsies doing your thing like you always do, and all of a sudden here you're struck with, the, with this uh, theophany. You're struck with the presence of God. There's an angel speaking to you. They tell you these magnificent words, and the next thing you know there's an army of angels and they're singing. What are they singing? Verse 14, glory to God in the highest, not excelsis, but altissimo, not on high, but on the highest. In other words, there is no point higher. Glory to God in the highest. And really, the single point I want to make, because this is really only part one of this message, and the single point I want to make is that this really is reflective of the Christian faith. It's praise, isn't it? It's praise. And here we have some of the highest praise in all of the scriptures that is being done by a choir of angels. And what are they saying? They're saying, glory to God in the highest. It speaks of heaven, doesn't it? But they're connecting. They're connecting heaven with earth because they go on to say, on earth, peace among those with whom he is pleased. What peace are they talking about? An external peace? No, not a merely external peace because Jesus makes it clear that in this, in this life we're going to have what? So we're going to have troubles. It's an inward peace, and it's an inward peace that begins with the words, fear not, for I bring you good news. If it weren't for the angels saying, fear not, to these gypsies, did they have reason to fear? Oh, you better believe they did. What are they deserving? They're deserving judgment. And they know that. Their shuddering proves that they know that full well. Well, that's the gypsies, but what about us? Certainly we don't deserve the same, do we? Yeah. We deserve exactly the same. But what does the gospel tell us? It tells us of good news. Good news about what? Good news about Jesus Christ coming to do what? To take the sin dead away. To take the sin dead away. And now... Sinners can have peace with God 
That's the first, that's the first part of this peace, if you will. There's many levels to it. I'm just going to share two. One is peace with God. That's where it all begins. We do not have peace in this life until we have peace with God. And if we, if we don't believe that, just watch the world. Just watch it. It doesn't have peace anywhere. Not any kind of lasting peace. There is no peace out there. There's no peace out there. And because there's no peace um, in the world, there's, there's no peace with one another. You know, peace with one another is, is only going to begin as we find peace with God. But as we find with peace with God, one of, the, one of the marks that we've found peace with God is we're going to begin to find peace with one another, aren't we? And what could be more joyous than that? What could be a better Christmas present than that? To find peace with God and from there have peace with one another. And where would we be like, likely to find it? Hardly a feeding trough. Hardly um, on Calvary's hill, says the word, the world. But says the word, no, in this feeding trough. No, out on Calvary's hill. That's where we find it. If we find it in the midst of this welcomed um, weakness, as Jesus empties himself, if you will. Um, and again, I think that's probably as far as we should probably go this morning. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we so thank you for these words. We thank you, Father, for these truths. We thank you, Father, for uh, this wonderful word, Gloria. Uh, glory to God in the highest that is touched, Father, as we do this quick survey. We see this has touched uh, men and women from the first century. They wrote about it in the second and third century. And these words were sustained through every century in the medieval period, more than 200, uh, more than 200 melodies associated with these words that come from Luke chapter 2, verse 14, and into the Reformation. And now here we are uh, in, in 2022, at the end of 2022, uh, again, reflecting on these words. Oh, Father, what wondrous words they are, and Lord... Uh, may they fill our hearts, O oh Father, this morning with uh, just a new capacity to glorify you, Lord. For this truly is the mark of the Christian church. It's praise. Praise to you for coming in the person of Jesus Christ and coming in a way that we would never expect, devising a plan that we would be incapable of devising and coming uh, even on day one, being laid in a feeding trough. Here we're already being prepared for the cross where you would come to take the very things that you hate upon yourself so that you could remove them from our record, remove these sins from our record, thus cleansing us and purifying us and making us yours. Oh, Father, we look to you in praise and may this praise fill our hearts through this season and beyond. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.